You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, Rob and I speak by telephone with Peter Haas, minister at the Church of Conscious Harmony, a contemplative Christian community in Austin, Texas. The teaching of the church stands on two legs, the contemplative Christian tradition as presented by Father Thomas Keating and others, and the esoteric Christian fourth way known as the work of inner Christianity as presented by Morris Nicole, George Gurdjieff, and others. We'll get started with that show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Music of G.I. Gurdjieff, performed by the Gurdjieff Folk, on- Folk Instruments Ensemble, Levon Eskinian Director. This piece is called Prayer. This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol. And it's good to be here with you, Stuart. Of course, um, uh, our uh, listeners don't know, but we have uh, occasion to tell them now that unfortunately our guest, uh, who we had lined up uh, for our conversation today, at the last minute contacted us um, about a family emergency. So we'll have to get him back on. That's uh, Peter Haas, of course, of the Church of Conscious Harmony in Austin, Texas. And and so we'll have to... Um, um, uh, reschedule right. uh, uh, Pastor Haas, but uh, in the meantime... You get live radio at its best, unscripted and unprepared. <laughs> I'm, I'm not pre- pre- prepared to uh, agree to at its best, right. but but at least uh, um, at its uh, most uh, uh, unscripted, that's for sure. 
But I thought we could start talking about some of the t- some of the topics that uh, I was hoping to ask Pastor Haas about, because they are topics of enduring inter- interest to myself, and I think to you too, Stuart. So, um, so, so let's, let's just set up briefly. Uh, uh, we did an intro before the break, but Pastor Haas is a minister of the Church of Conscious Harmony, a contemplative. Christian community in Austin, Texas, and uh, we were introduced to him um, by one of our previous guests on the show and friend, Robin Bohr, who um, uh, runs the Austin-based Gurdjieff uh, group. And, and, uh, and also is the um, author of the series about Gurdjieff's writings called To Fathom the Gist. And he's based in Austin, so he knew of Peter Haas. And what was interesting about uh the program of the Church of Conscious Harmony is that it is configuring itself as a church in a kind of a traditional American sense that we understand church as a place that people go to for community and worship. And, and in fact, you can go to their website. Uh, I think it's consciousharmonychurch.org, if I'm not mistaken. But you can just do a Google and find it pretty, pretty readily. And there are pictures of what looks like a, um, you know, a church, a big, good-sized church facility. But, but the church is uh, founded in and focuses on, uh, as they describe it, two primary legs, the contemplative Christian tradition that we see represented by folks like Father Thomas Keating and the movement around centering prayer, and the esoteric uh, Christian fourth way, most uh, uh, famously uh, promoted by Morris Nicole, who was a student of Ospensky and Gurdjieff, but it, it's grounded in the teachings of Gurdjieff and the fourth way work. And they, um, in addition to to those um, foundational elements, they also bring in um, traditional ca- um, Christian practices like lectio divina, which is uh, divine, literally, I think, means divine reading. But it, but it's referring to a way of reading uh, scripture um, that brings a meditative or contemplative element into the act of the reading itself. In other words, creating a uh, a state of receptivity um, that is different than than we um, use to, oh, I don't know, read the newspaper or in these days uh, uh, listen to um, a podcast. It's, uh, it's It's a kind of practice that allows these... Um, these sacred texts or scriptures to be received um, in a way different than ordinary information, or at least that's 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 the idea as I understand it. Right. So that's one that's one of the other legs. Yeah, and and the topics that uh, we look forward to getting into on, on a later show when we reschedule uh, uh, Pastor Haas is is in and around this. Um, intersection of what we think of as religious practice or the community aspect of um, uh, church which which resonates very deeply with uh, the kind of the dominant forms of religious expression in the US and esoteric spiritual practice which is more 
typically, you know, we, we certainly in the, the uh, modern spiritual movement, a lot of times that esoteric spiritual practice is, finds its expression in Eastern traditions or unusual traditions that are off the mainstream from the um, mainstream Christian. So seeing something that tries to reclaim a, a Christian practice and introduces... Uh, what might be called spiritual exercises or spiritual discipline into that is an interesting combination. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not actually... I, I, I would take slight exception to what you just... to the configuration you just offered, Stuart, because because I think it's it's fair to say, and guests, previous guests on our show have pointed to the uh, reality that... Um, what's called the, the the branch of Christianity called Eastern or Orthodox Christianity still ret- still tends to retain more of um, that flavor that you're pointing to yes. than than either the Roman Catholic um, that I'm familiar with or the uh, um, uh, various Protestant sects of Western Christianity. Yeah, and I think I'm probably more... Uh, keen off of the expression of Christianity in the form of the many uh, flavors of Protestantism, and particularly when you think of a place like in uh, uh, Texas in the Austin area, a a church is uh, you know, probably going to be a Protestant church, and there's well, hold hold on, hold on. Texas Texas has a lot of Catholics, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's in fact, uh, the the Hispanic element, even right. though that's that's hardly a guarantee of uh, Catholicism, nevertheless. No, you're you're right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm and I, this is not a um, a major point here. I think the no. the more the more interesting thing to me is when spiritual discipline moves from the esoteric to something that's uh, more readily accessible by uh, uh, a more public body of practitioners. Well, that is the intriguing aspect of both what we were told briefly by our friend Robin Bloor about this institution, but as well as what I get from going to the website and reading a fairly um, detailed description of ideas, beliefs, practices, etc. Because um, I have uh, the outline of some of that stuff there. That's something we can certainly talk about, you know, um, for this hour at least. And um, because, because although we'll certainly get the, the scoop from uh, Pastor Haas when we uh, reschedule him, nevertheless, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of material here that I think is quite interesting. The uniqueness of, of the institution is precisely this point that you've just made, Stuart, which is um, an attempt to bring what um, what they call, and you, you were calling, esoteric, esotericism into an institution that on the face of it kind of, kind of sort of resembles um, a standard Protestant-looking church mm-hmm. um, in... In America, and that's a um, that's something I've never seen elsewhere. Yeah, I mean it's interesting where that where that divide or where that transition happens because, for instance, if I think about something that's very common in um, uh, Christian communities uh, and churches all over the U.S., uh, 
having Bible reading classes uh, is a uh, pretty popular uh, thing that people get together quite sincerely to try to understand more deeply what the passages in the Bible might mean. Mm -hmm. And then when we talk about uh, Lectio Divina, where uh, reading with a, a, a kind of attention, reading with an engagement, and reading with a confrontation of the ideas such that one ponders them deeply uh, as a spiritual exercise, um, to what extent does Lectia Divina happen in Bible studies, and to what extent is, is a Bible study more driven by uh, superficial engagement with the material? Don't look at me, because... Uh, um uh, I have no no experience to uh, to bring to that, so you you might have more. Um, I don't know. Only peripheral, and um, I and in a sense, I I don't know enough to know. That's partly why I asked the question. Is is, is well, Lexio Divina is not is not as I understand it. Um, uh, you, you use the word confrontation in your description. I don't think I don't think that's quite quite right. It's actually an, an openness, uh, a non-critical mind, as as I understand it. And um, I think that's an important point. Our, our friend uh, uh, Jim Wilson, um, who uh, uh, perhaps is the best source that I have had in my life about Lectio Divina, has defi- definitely spoken of it um, in a way that specifies this cultivation of a mind that does not that that does not say no, or when when there is a con- confrontative or or critical thought about what's being read, when that arises is is not surprising. That is not pursued. It is deliberately not pursued. That's at least part of what this this practice is about, as I understand it. Yeah, and, and when I say conf, conf, confront, I mean really something less uh, um, uh, combative and more something to stand in front of and to be present to. Okay. Um, what is being said and the. I think what I think we would agree that what's distinguished in the practice of lectio divina is the it's in, in, involves the suspension of a tendency of mind to react to and immediately categorize what is being received mm-hmm. as opposed to cultivating an inner stillness and allowing what's being read to go into that stillness mm-hmm. and being present to what might sound in response from a different level than the discursive mind. Yeah, well I think I think the the key word there um used suspension, but I'd say to suspend um uh, in other words to not leap to judgment is is probably the key point that I would um where I would agree with with your description, but of course this um practice of lectio divina um is just one relatively small aspect of the range of practices. Um, and um, one of the questions that we can't uh, establish today is how the church was founded and, and so forth. We, we need to, 
Pastor Haas for that. But um, but we can talk about some of the stuff that they ha- that they list um, on their website about uh, practices that they do. So they have something called uh, the Rule of Life, which um, congregants undertake um, to put into their lives. And it's a fairly lengthy list of nine uh, specific things. So they commit to doing twice-daily centering prayer practice. And centering prayer, of course, is uh, that's the connection to Thomas Keating and uh, uh, I think it's Basil Pennington and others um, who... Um, in the 20th century, late 20th century, um, established this uh, uh, practice in um, other Christian sects. There's the daily reading of scripture, and presumably that's where you would bring in the Lectio Divina. Uh, Daily reading of the work of inner Christianity. There There I'm guessing that we might be looking at resources like Morris Nicole's work in the fourth way, his psychological commentaries. Uh, we might be looking at In Search of the Miraculous, other yeah. other fourth way and, texts. And Nicole has written books, books explicitly like interpretations of the Gospels from a uh, work perspective or a fourth way work perspective. Right. And then they also mention authors like Thomas Merton, Richard Rohr, Bernadette Roberts. And I'm guessing that that their work too. I I haven't read Bernadette Roberts, although our good friend Jim Wilson is uh, deeply appreciative of her work. But I have read Richard Rohr and and really like um, uh, a lot of stuff that uh, I've read by him. Then, in addition to the, to those other th- those first three elements, they bring up daily conscious movement, and apparently that's. Um, that can take many different forms because they list Tai Chi, yoga, walking, etc. But I, I gather that it's intended to be done with a particular um, awareness um, brought to it. Um, there's small group participation, and um, and this is um, familiar for those who have... Um, Done group work, I think, in the uh, uh, in various lines of the fourth way tradition, and other, and probably other uh, similar to other um, endeavors as well. There's a commitment to attend centering prayer retreats, where it seems pretty straightforward what that's about. Um, then they have, interestingly, um, a seva group. Uh, seva meaning uh, is the uh, uh, Sanskrit word for service. And um, they actually write this this seventh item is seva group or yes program participation. We don't get to ask Peter Haas today what yes, capital Y E, capital capital Y, capital E, capital S program, what that's about. But um, we'll get to in the future tithing, which is understandable, and then regular attendance at Sunday service. So it's a it's a fairly um, comprehensive list Um, and one of the things that strikes me about it is that it seems to follow the general fourth way prescription for work on different centers more or less simultaneously yeah 
It does, and and the other aspect of it that takes it out of the domain of um, conventional or exoteric religion and into the esoteric is a daily practice. And when one is engaged in contemplative practices on a regular basis, it builds a certain kind of spiritual muscle, as it were, or a, a kind of quality of attention that is distinct from just a community group that gets together because they share a certain set of beliefs and, you know, are finding kind of relief or camaraderie together. Well, it's interesting you see that, that you say that because another one of the features um, that uh, um, the congregation is um, uh, expected to engage in is something that they call annual aim, where... They uh, write on the the website, at the beginning of each year, an annual aim is presented to the church community. All are invited to join in community, to participate in intention and will to God, to renew your commitment to the spiritual journey, moving ever deeper together as a community of intention, practice, and devotion. And and, and, uh, that, too, seems to be uh, congruent with some of the lines of uh, fourth way work where um, um, we try uh, people are enjoined to um, be of service to different aspects of creation um, different assets to society um, etc to one's fellow um, practice participants um, to family etc and this seems like an like an interesting way to frame a, a community coming together around a particular aim for that community that is renewed every year. I, I'm I'm intrigued by it. Yeah. So you know, kind of going beyond just uh, this this particular material, we were talking earlier today uh, in a pre-recording for a show that we're going to air next week um, with uh, another member of the Seekers Cafe, Zeke Badger. And one of the interesting themes that came up early in that discussion was, in his own formative experience, the encounters with the sacred or a sense of the sacred and you know you you yourself have described this in your as a child you know your earliest experiences of the catholic church involved a, a numinous uh uh experience of um of awe or grandeur or something higher that was uh that filled filled your four-year-old self with a uh a resounding sense of awe that you can still recall today uh many many years later and what i guess i want to explore right now is a you know the contention that's come up in some other discussions and it's come up with our friend jim wilson and ken mcleod about um some of the struggles we have with spiritual practice and spiritual growth in the modern world and to what extent uh the our modern society and our modern um, uh, uh, civilization is uh, pushing the uh, the sacred aside or sort of discounting the sacred and doesn't create as much room for the sacred. And 
I'm interested in what you think of that. Whether you buy that contention is is it is it really the case that our world and our, our you know our the, our first world uh, uh, societies are becoming less you know less I, connected with the sacred, or is it just simply expressing in different ways? I don't know. Uh, I don't have a short answer to that. Um, because as I um, constantly reflect, or not constantly, but but frequently, th- more and more throughout the day, reflect on um, my relationship to what I'm doing, my relationship to whatever particular social or physical context that I'm in, um, I'm more and more aware that that um, that there's no particular lens that I need to bring to bear to find the sacred, which is different than when than when I was a kid. I mean, you you referenced when I was three or four years old, and not even sure how old exactly I was, and it may not have been my first memory. I don't think I'm, I'm, I may be wrong about this, but I, don't, I doubt that it was my first memory of going into the Catholic Church that was the one that I, I certainly would have been um, introduced to when my parents moved when I was two years because my parents moved just after I turned two years old to the town where that where I then spent the next 12 years and attending parochial school being an altar boy and stuff but that but that experience of a rising energy of an expanding awareness um, in the context of the Latin rituals um, and the various accoutrements of of ritual um, was uh, something uh, still memorable to me. So I, this particular church had a had a little side um, altar to the side of the main altar, and there was a retractable um, glass window that would go up and down and when I was in there that's where all the um, mothers with potentially noisy children would be shunted so they wouldn't be in the main in the main uh, hall of the church and so so there was a lot there there was a lot of kid energy in that space and yet I just um, have this very strong recollection of a resonance of that expansive quality that was new to me at that time and um, and as I reflect on it now I realize that those those ritual those elements of ritual that the Roman Catholic Church had preserved in Latin language in the physical elements of the mass and and other um, uh, ways to practice um, helped me as a child, I think, p- 
pointed my attention in a direction as a child that um, because of my youth, I think, I was, you know, I was uh, easily able to tune into. And now, um, at this stage of my, you know, uh, the age of 66, after more than 40 years of, of uh, if you want to call it, es- esoteric practice, um, I have a different relationship to, um, it's not that the, it's not that ritual is um, unwelcome mm-hmm. for me, but I don't need, I don't seem to need ritual in the way that I used to, to access um, the various uh, features of what we might call um, an esoteric opening to the world. So I got it. I, and I want to go deeper on some of that because uh, you, you've raised some interesting points. Uh, do you think the the sacred, as we are discussing it, and that and that experience of engaging in ritual without really knowing at a cognitive level what that ritual is about, mm-hmm. but having the body participate, you know, having the emotions participate in the sense that, you know, there's kind of a tension about doing it right and, you know, um, uh, and, and particip- you know, doing what everyone else is doing. Uh, and then the intellectual is like, you don't really, you're sort of parking your interpretation and just and engaging in the ritual. And I get, and what I'm, what I'm really getting at is, is, is this, is the, Ritual and the uh, invitation of the sacred to turn one's attention to something larger than oneself, a way in which people have the opportunity to get out of the ordinary uh, sense of sort of uh, uh, personality-driven mental activity or get out of the the, uh, sort of hypnotism of the inner dialogue for some brief brief period of time. And... And that opening is what we associate with an emotional sense of awe. Well, you're you're pointing to something that they may be operative for most people, um, that may be potentially operative for most people uh, in terms of inner dialogue. But remember, if I was only three years old, three or four years old, the, the issue of inner dialogue was not as as compelling right. uh, for me, and so um, um, so I wouldn't I, w- I wouldn't say that 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 um, that that aspect was particularly important. I don't I don't well, think it. I, I'm not saying it was absent. Right. But I but I am I am wanting to make the point that the. Um, the direction of attention inherent in the ritual or the invitation to direction of attention struck me as as being large that is you know when you're a kid your your attention is focused often fairly narrowly upon whatever whatever thing is in front of you at the moment mm. And what 
what I remember about these experiences is precisely that I was aware of the whole space uh, so uh, and, and, and beyond the space and beyond the space, which is an important point. It may have been the first time in my life, as far as I know, I, I can't my my uh, memory of those days is uh, is uh, not comprehensive but it may have been the first time in my life that my attention had ever expanded so widely as that that's that's interesting i'm i'm sort of relating that again to what our um uh uh guest in our pre-recorded interview Zeke was talking about in terms of uh finding the sacred in nature mm-hmm. because there's there's a an interesting analogy there that some of the most powerful experiences I've had in nature come, you know, when you have huge vistas where you're taking in this large, large totality, one, one's individuality and sort of uh, immediate point concerns as an organism get very small, and suddenly one's attention is drawn to a larger scale of being in existence and it sounds similar to what you were describing there yeah and i think i think in in terms of my own engagement with nature i mean it would certainly uh track with what you were just describing but i don't think that's the only way to um access a sense of expansiveness in nature only with vistas in other words, um, I can remember, you know, being in places in the Sierra Nevada mountains where there sh- surely there are plenty of expansive vistas, but in places that didn't have expansive vistas that were, you know, um, a small little little valley where the trees were were blocking the view- views of a distance, where there might be. Um, Nothing in particular going on, but when I let my attention settle, then um, my awareness could, as as if spontaneously expand, because I wasn't looking at any one particular thing, mm-hmm. and that's, I think, a little bit more akin um, to. Um, my experience, the experience as a child that that, we, that you uh, uh, started discussing earlier. Now, I, do, I, I certainly don't want to dismiss the the expansive view thing. I, I when I was a late teenager, I had just that sort of um, numinous experience in the Santa Cruz Mountains, which um, had which included both near and far. Um, so I think it's it's uh, the conclusion I would I would make is is that there's lots of um, oppor- there are lots of opportunities to find an aware a, a sense of awareness larger than what we're used to, and and uh, nature has nature itself has more than one. Um, way I can imagine, and in fact, I can remember now that I, that I accessed the memory, looking in a tide pool, and and being amazed. So make, macrocosm and microcosm can be expansive um, uh, uh, objects of attention. Mm-hmm. It seems to me, 
Um, and it just depends on, on what you're doing and how you're doing it. Yeah, I, and again, I'm, I'm trying, you know, I'm circling around this partly to get back to the question of whether our uh, modern society is um, uh, making it less possible or or just discounting that that those qualities of experience or is this something that we just you know necessarily as human beings experience in uh, at, at various punctuated times in our lives I don't think it's necessary as far as I can tell just depend I mean partly I, I suppose it depends on the person it depends on their inclination it depends on the contexts that they experience. Um, if life is filled with fear, 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 fear cuts things, cuts cuts the attention down to size. Yeah, and 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 reactivity in general, if, to, to the extent that one is finding one's attention constantly in reaction to either events outside or psychological events inside mm -hmm. uh, and are more or less just being pulled along for the ride, then it seems to me that there there isn't quite the spaciousness to allow this quality of attention that we're describing that we're calling, um, you know, beholding the sacred. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, through much of my adult life, I've been... I've been happy to, to listen to arguments about how um, society has changed and social contexts have changed and the um, capacity of predilection of certain social arrangements, um, social customs, etc., may enhance the possibility for people to open awareness. Um, but the truth is, I don't think there's any way that we can know yeah. how this works. So, so, so bear with me for for a moment. You know, I've I've been lately I've been reading critiques of uh, of uh, modern society that that suggest that um, in the past it was easier to value to assign value to an apprehension of, this, of the sacred. But I'm not sure that we really know yeah. that, for example, um, in medieval Europe or in uh, the Buddha's time in India or in any particular period in Chinese history or uh, shamanic um, you know uh, shamanically based uh, so-called religious systems in a variety of different cultures around the world I'm not sure that we know what people what what people generally found um, useful I mean you can you could you could say that as you know there's a critique that that scientific thinking in early modern Europe made of certain forms of mechanical relig religiosity, for example. And, um, and I don't have a problem with, with that, but we just don't know 
what people were were thinking about these things other than a few a handful just a handful of of writers usually privileged people um in those societies i'm just not sure that that there's any reliable conclusion to be drawn um about historical processes um in in this arena and partly because it, some of these some of these forms of access of the sacred can be substantially incommensurable, mutually incommensurable. That is, you can't translate one into the other readily. Shamanism into, I don't know, uh, uh, some Islam or something like that. There's there's uh, just um, vast variety. Yeah. And and I suspect there's also vast variety in capacity among different human beings at different times, born into different circumstances, experiencing different contexts in life. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a part of the, uh, the, the analysis of the Gurdjieff tradition that suggests that at any given time, there's a certain number of people who may be more closely connected, if you will, or spiritually awakened, or uh, uh, you know, spiritually or um, oriented towards the sacred, and a larger number of people that are oriented more towards the needs and necessities of um, uh, natural life on Earth. And without trying to privilege the sacred in this kind of context, it does. It, Although it's hard with the language you were just using, well, but I take your point. It, only if you value the sacred. <laughs> well, but, but but implicit in the way you you framed it. I, yeah, that, I, was, I, that was present. That I, was present. I understand because we're we're kind of conditioned to you know think in those terms, but uh, I mean, but still, the you know that that that's the the. the idea there is that from generation to generation or from society to society what that actual distribution is may change slightly uh, uh, in a let's say a more quote unquote uh, enlightened society that has just more social institutions that are feeders for and attractors of people who have that disposition to be drawn towards uh, mysticism but for the most part uh, it's still always a relatively small number compared to the uh, the majority of people who are, you know, essentially living their lives in fulfillment of the functionality of uh, a natural, the natural world. Well, what you're calling a, a natural life or a natural world is is, is essentially uh, uh, looking to material concerns and. Um, material entertainment um so um and there's nothing wrong with those things um that's that's part of the difficulty of 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 talking about this this stuff right but it it is um it what it speaks to is and what i'm reason i'm bringing up that that model is in that model um it's maybe a little how to put it i guess in that model the modern era isn't that distinguished from past eras. Uh, to your point, that well, we don't. Uh, actually, my point is that we don't know that it's. Uh, well, yeah. we, we don't know how it's 
it may be different. Well, yeah, people uh, pe- pe- people make claims today when they're arguing in opposition to quote unquote modern society and its uh, effects on you know our access to the sacred that somehow people had more access to the sacred in in past generations. I've I've just been reading um, this book by uh, Adam Gopnik, A Thousand Small Sanities, just came out, where he's um, discussing uh, essentially the the liberal project in the last few centuries, mostly of the uh, the West, but it's certainly been... uh, uh, transmuted or transmitted um, into other parts of the world as well, and so this this liberal political project um, is opposed by by both left and right. It's but the liberal p- political project has has a number of different features: uh, communitarianism that is trying to um, reduce. Um, cruelty is one feature that that Gopnik points to, but um, it's resisted by, um, as I say, uh, political m- movements of the left and the right. And on the right, there's there's he identi- identifies three basic strands. I won't go through it all, but one of the strands is what he calls, I think, theological uh, authoritarianism. And and one of the ways that manifests is to point to this idealized past where things were just great and um, and this uh, lib- modern liberal um, relativism where people get to have different ideas and th- and they're not penalized for them <laughs> yes. um, is is this perversion and takes us away from uh, the possibility of faith um, strong community commitment, etc., and he's he's responding to that um, to that uh, uh, point by by saying that that our views of the past are um, or those views of the past rather um, those theological um, authoritarian views um, stress. That it's only when you had this settled hierarchical order that um, you had uh, people knowing their place, and then they knew their place with respect to God as well as with respect to society. And and I understand um, what he's saying about that, but my the funny thing is my anthropological. Uh, background comes to bear here and one of the things that when I was studying uh, um, archaeological context is ar- you know, archaeologists draw on the work studying hunter-gatherer societies mm-hmm. which is before you get any kind of um, essentialized authoritarian uh, social structures basically so um, in those hunter-gatherer societies um, we don't we don't know um, um, or we can't we can't um, point to um, at least in 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 the ones that probably existed through most of human prehistory we can't point to some kind of uh, uh, garden of Eden essentially um, 
of of a hierarchical structure where everyone knew their place. Rather, it was this fluid um, situation, and that was most of human history. And it's only when we start to um, settle down and accumulate lots of goods that suddenly the authoritarian impulse really, as far as we know, it's only then that the authoritarian impulse starts to embody as, um, you know, strong men and later kings and, you know, all kinds right. of chieftains, etc. In other words, it's, it's not at all clear um, to me that, um, that we should look to the um, more recent past, and by that I'm from the long term, I mean, you know, the last five thousand, ten five, thousand five, five to ten thousand years yeah. for 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 the um, um, the the putative Garden of Eden. Right. I mean, this, this it's a trope that comes up. It comes up in the uh, Gurdjieff work because in the uh, mythology uh, that Gurdjieff lays out in uh, his book Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson, uh, there's always this sort of implication of there was a society at one time that was more properly ordered, and there's been a degeneration. And well, I, there was a cataclysm. Yeah, yeah. well, there was there was cataclysm, there's been, but there was also, the, the cataclysm was what gave rise to the, uh, the uh, humans on the earth to begin with, but the uh, wh- the issue is that he, I think that's more of a rhetorical device. I mean, it may, in one sense, you could say it's a, oh, it's absolutely true. In another sense, uh, well, uh, allegorically, does, yeah, true. allegorically, it makes sense because it speaks to something about the nature of our uh, psychological and spiritual development, mm-hmm. and wh- where the where the allegory is most importantly uh, understood and contemplated, but. That idea that there's been there was a golden age and we've sort of descended from that is 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 definitely a popular trope. It's interesting that um, Gopnik uh, in his book uh, identifies that with uh, theological authoritarianism because it's a great way to control people. Because if things were good in the past, then uh, I I have the key and you've got to listen to me and the rules that I'm applying. And my uh, yeah, because uh, because but, because I'm the one who knows what, yeah. how how. How the ideal situation right. uh, was. Yeah. So, yes, it, it's. It, so I guess uh, um, in this loop of the conversation, the idea that the um, uh, sacred is uh, uh, somehow being squashed away in the modern world, I think, is uh, maybe overstated. And and the, the other point, you know, as I think about this and I talk about this, I kind of wonder. A little bit about when I think about the evening news, particularly the local news on television. You know, they always lead with the murders, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and the uh, horrific crimes because it's a sensationalistic way to get people's uh, uh, juices flowing so that they'll pay attention to the news. Maybe at the end they'll sort of close with some feel-good story or something like that, and that that tends to be the formula. And our discourse around much of anything tends to follow that kind of um, uh, sensibility, so that you know there is exaggerated disaster uh, looming in one sense, or, or you know the modern world is uh, you know uh, uh, 
going to Hades in a handbucket uh, uh, because of our technologies and this, that, and the other. And yet, when we were talking uh, uh, this morning with um, uh, our upcoming guest, I was reflecting how, if you really look at people's lives um, uh, and look at different corners of the world, uh you'll also find a lot of good happening and a lot of people having very deep, uh, meaningful lives. And and that's... Um, I wonder to what extent there's a little bit in these conversations, a bit of the sort of the evening news uh, syndrome going on. Well, you, you've, uh, um, you've managed to uh, uh, take up the time at the end here, so you get the last word in this first hour, but I'll, I'll, I'll start off in the next in response to that. All right, well, uh, we do need to take a break at the hour. You're listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. And our spontaneous conversation yes. that we're having today uh, in lieu of um, our conversation with uh, Peter Haas of the Church of Conscious right. Harmony in Austin because he had uh, an emergency, a family emergency. Yeah, so uh, we're, we are just talking about some of the interesting issues of... Uh, the sacred and the uh, uh, we were talking about esoteric Christianity and the practice elements of that. Who knows what we're going to talk about after the break? We'll return to our show after a short musical break. Musical interludes on this show are from a CD called Music of G.I. Gurdjieff, performed by the Gurdjieff Folk Instruments Ensemble, Levan Eskinian director. This piece is called Said Chant and Dance Number 29.
Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, Rob and I are freewheeling because of a last-minute cancellation of our planned guest, and we've been talking about esoteric Christianity, we've been talking about Lectio Divina, we've been talking about the uh, sacred and how we experience the sacred in uh, our lives. And And towards the end of the last hour, we were discussing um, analyses of uh, whether different social configurations have uh, been obstacles, essentially, to accessing the sacred, devaluing the uh, capacity to access the sacred, etc. And I was, I was expressing uh, a skepticism about the utility of some of those analyses. It's, it's not that there's, there's no point in looking at it, um, but um, there's a famous uh, story of the Buddha um, who he uses uh, the analogy of a person who has been wounded by an arrow and um, some of the ways in which people um, obsess about um, this sort of thing is to point to well I think the arrow came in at this tra- trajectory and then it and then it uh, entered the body just here and it call, caused the person to fall down instead of focusing on removing the arrow so um, so to 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 some extent, um, the um, the focus on what's wrong with society now that um, uh, formerly uh, was different, it strikes me is a little bit like the people analyzing the trajectory of the arrow, who shot it, why they shot it, etc. And rather more interesting and more productive is to is to look at um, what can we do right now. What's what's lacking in this moment that stops me from from accessing the sta- sacred, or stops my my you know fellow practitioner from accessing the sacred? And that's a more productive question, it seems to me, and a better place to uh, put put one's energy. So, where I wanted to go uh, next is just to kind of work out and I'm working out something that I've been thinking about and writing about which in this particular instance is uh, related to what's called in the fourth way tradition the magnetic center and as I understand that notion the magnetic center is a capacity we have or a uh, it's a thing that attracts us to um things spiritual and that you know if I look at myself why was I interested in um, uh, spiritual practice or spiritual work um, of a certain kind when many of my friends although they're you know sensitive nice you know interest you know they're they they definitely have you know many attributes very similar to mine but they didn't they they weren't drawn in the same way that I was. And it's not that I'm better, it's just I had a particular draw or yearning for connecting with a tradition and connecting with a uh, teaching and a body of practice. And 
this is ex- to some extent explained in the uh, fourth way as, as the presence of magnetic center. There's different theories or different conversations about where magnetic center comes from, whether it's uh, something that's a consequence of formatory experiences as a child, um, whether it's something that one brings into this life uh, from uh, existences that one may have in uh, other worlds and other lives. And um, uh, in one sense, it doesn't matter because it's it's simply a device to explain why someone is attracted to the sacred and the the in this context uh you know i i was reading some material from morris nicole about magnetic center and how how it, in uh his particular community they configured this and there was a very clear sense that magnetic center was really about valuation so it's like uh in order to enter into spiritual practice, you have to value it. There has to be some sense of valuation. That's not, uh, I'd say that's not uh, sufficient, but it is a necessary condition. And so magnetic center really has to do with valuation. And if someone has a uh, operating magnetic center at an emotional level, there's a sense of valuation of spiritual practice of some form or another. And it may find expression in a Buddhist tradition or a uh, uh, esoteric Christian tradition, but there's that valuation and that yearning for that, and that will pull you into encounters with people, situations, experiences that open up the possibility of that kind of um, engagement. Okay. So the... The reason I bring that up is that, in, in a way, it speaks to a um, it's a counter to the argument that external conditions, like uh, a particular cultural moment or our, our particular uh, epic, is presenting unique obstacles for people to encounter um, uh, interior work or spiritual work. Got it. So, what do you think? I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea uh, what's going on. These are all just theories about um, about uh, after the fact trying to explain why people do what they do, and um, you know that's what the mind does. It it creates um, stories to tell us about what's going on. Um, certainly no one's ever, as far as I know, um, identified a device that can um, uh, measure the uh, strength of the magnetic center, whatever that means and however it would exist. Mm-hmm. So it's a story. You know, it's great. Well, I mean, for, cer- for certain purposes, I think. But, I, but in terms of helping distinguish between... Um, external and internal um, explanations for why people do what they do or don't do what they don't do. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm equally unpersuaded by, by that as, by, as I'm unpersuaded, you know, as I was saying earlier, 
um, by sociological explanations for um, the way that that things suck now and used to be much better. Yeah, well, but I, th- I don't know that you're being particularly uh, fair to the idea. And, okay, well then, t- convince and, 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 me. The, well, and I'm I'm inviting you to test test it in your own experience in terms of. Uh, if you if you look at you know obviously a term like magnetic center sounds strange so it, it, yeah what is that but if you start to explore the question of why is it that uh, you had a valuation of the work uh, dis- as distinguished from um, the valuation let's say uh, uh, your brother had or like I look at my brother you know because there's similar upbringing similar uh, uh, factors. Uh, uh, similar social contexts and things like that, or my friends. You know, why why is that valuation different? I, I I'm as much persuaded by the idea that it comes from a previous lifetime, and I have no idea that there are previous. Li- I mean, I have no certainty that there are something like something like a continuity from um, right. you know body to body, um, but. But I find that um, as good an explanation as as others. I mean, you know, when I was 20 years old or so, and, uh, you know, a troubled young guy trying to... Fu- uh, tr- troubled young gay man trying to figure out how to be gay in a world that didn't seem very um, welcoming to that. Um at one point, I went to a bookstore in Palo Alto, California. Um, this is when Palo Alto was not quite as distinguished a community other than the existence of a university there, um, as it is now, as the the, uh, the place where lords of the Silicon Valley uh, hang out. But I went to this bookstore, and because it was a university town, they had you know a number of... Uh, uh, interesting bookstores, and I went to a uh, um, one of the back shelves in the back of the store, and there were these books that somehow I knew I felt as if they were powerful, but I could barely touch them, and you know it was uh, the Gurdjieff stuff. Now I had no recollection of ever having heard the name I don't think I knew the name I didn't have any sense of um, uh, any way to to value or devalue or judge those things and yet I was full of this trepidatious energy um, um, by which I mean I was scared to touch the damn things um, and when I did touch them, I felt like I couldn't even open them. Where did that come from? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I honestly don't know. It, it, but that's that was my experience. You know, you could, uh, I, I can and, and have constructed a story that wherever that set of impulses and experiences came from. Um, it's, it prevented me from picking up something that I could use later to better purpose because I was so, uh, I wasn't ready. 
I was right. young, unformed, not yet uh, able to. Uh, I mean, I was still living with my parents. I think, you know, I wasn't out in the world. Right, but I, and so I think the 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 device of the magnetic center, if you want to call it a story or you call it a construct, uh, to the extent that it's a useful idea, it uh, gives us a sort of a way of describing a set of experiences, which which is there came a time where suddenly there was a uh, uh, a strong recognition and yearning for a connection to. Uh, something we might call spiritual. And well, well, in my case, it was it was meeting my teacher and vibrating with energy, even though I didn't know at all what was going on. I had no conscious no conscious uh, experience. I mean, he you know he was leading a group of people reading and commenting on Sufi stories. That was it. Um, and if it had been someone else, it probably would have been. You know, at best, mildly interesting. Um, I mean, at this, at around the same time in my life, I'd met someone who was uh, who introduced me to the uh, Chinese concept of Wu Wei, um, which, as you know, is is this idea of it's essentially, as I understand it, I, I, I may be mis stating things here but is essentially relaxing into being one with the flow of the Tao so um, um, and I found that intriguing I read read some books about it um, and it was attractive in a mildly pleasant kind of way and I thought about it a little bit but there was no juice Beyond um, that relatively uh, uh, it, was, it was like it, it was as if I had found something you know a cl- if I were taking a class on geology and 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 got all uh, uh, pleased that I could now identify geological formations when I went out into the uh, California countryside I mean you know there's pleasure in that. And yet it's not anything like, anything like what you're calling the operation of this magnetic, this putative magnetic center. Right. The other thing that I'll mention about that construct, which I find interesting in the uh, uh, Nicole commentaries, is the recognition that it, it it is necessary to get you in the door, as it were, but it is not... In and of itself, it's not sufficient to um, keep you in uh, esoteric work. That what's what what is necessary as a further step is that one actually engage in practice and begin to recognize in one's direct experience the impact that that practice has on one's uh, flow of experience. Okay. Well, one, once again, I'm I'm just not. Um convinced that this invisible magnetic center helps us helps us understand anything that we didn't already know or helps us um, deal with how to be uh, uh, how to have a productive inner life 
how to ha how to um, direct our attention productively onto our inner lives and how that inner life is touched by the universe. Um, I mean, I'm I'm willing to be convinced, but but uh, but I'm not uh, at this point. Yes. And, and so and so, um, you know, I see. I, I just described a, a set of circumstances that seemed to point to some kind of uh, attunement in me, or at least in my experience of who I am, that um, when the right tuning fork came into my, vis my, my vicinity, um, really caused a response in me. Right. Yeah. But but I, I want to make go on to make the point that that doesn't mean that that's the only way for someone to um, that you have to have that s uh, something similar to that to have a productive inner engagement. In fact, I think we've we've had previous guests on this show um, whose description, at least. Of their upbringing and uh, and initial engagement with spiritual practice didn't have the, the same sort of attunement quality that I was pointing to. That's just me, right? But it but it was um, you know what distinguished you and what distinguishes the guests on our show, which is probably one of the reasons we always lead off with this question about um, experiences that one has that prefigure one's connection with a, a line of dedication to practice of one form or another is that everyone, just by the nature of the show that we talk to, uh, has uh, a heightened valuation of, of, the, of spiritual work. And it was... You know, it, they share that, and they and um, it is something of a mystery why some people have it and some people don't. It's not something of a mystery. It's entirely a mystery. That's the point I'm making. And, right. and these these explanations, these sociological ex explanations, the um, uh, magnetic center thing, the Hindu the Hindus, as I understand it, or many, if not most. Hindu uh, practitioners or believers um, uh, assert that everyone has a yearning, yeah. um, and maybe that's true. But there, in a lot of people, it's it's awfully well, uh, well and deeply buried. Well, so so th this has practical consequences, and it it comes up in the discussions in the Seekers Cafe about what what's the the best way to orient a a online resource for. Uh, curated, um, you know, let's say fourth-way related and uh, sort of adjacent uh, traditions. What, what is, you know, what's, do you, are you trying to explain to people why this is a good thing? Are you trying to simply radiate a certain kind of uh, um, uh, quality of material that those who are interested will uh, uh Value and make use of it in a positive way. I'm, I'm 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 saying that they that people who will make use of it in a positive way will be ineluctably attracted to the radiation. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that, or, or what that means is, you don't try to um, 
manipulate people into into doing something. You simply um, make the most authentic material available as authentically as possible. Right. And that's 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 the question: is how do you make authenticity authentically? Available. Right, and and in contrast to manipulating people, or as it were, marketing to people, mm-hmm. where you're trying to uh, adapt your message to you know to bring people in. Well, there was a there was a discussion today um, where it was pointed out the extraordinary depth to which the um, internet has been. As uh, to use uh, the word uh, that um, our friend Richard uh, used, um, has been monetized. That is to say that, um, and I've been listening to other uh, explanations of of uh, how how just in general our data. I mean, you know, to the extent to which Alexa and our even our our iPhones and stuff like that collect data on us. That then is monetized um, by various different um, companies, etc. And um, and we can even and we even read about the way that these things are not just monetized in other countries, for example, or in this country where where data was used to help uh, sway the last presidential election. Um, the, I'm talking about the Cambridge Analytica story. But also uh, in China, where where um, people are are having their DNA tested, they're creating these uh, uh, non-Han Chinese uh, databases of all these people who are potentially um, um, not on, not in with the program uh, of the political leaders of China. Right. There's all kinds of um, uh, ways in which the internet. And and the digital world in in general are um, being used to manipulate us in in sophisticated ways that most of us don't even know about. Right. So so you know going back to this question then of uh, the the practical consequences of a construct like magnetic center is that uh, it it can clarify for us the futility of trying to change the message for the audience because even if you get someone in the door as it were uh, on the basis of that they'll be completely useless uh, to authentic work and not interested ultimately well of course so the more appropriate response you know out of that construct would be to as you say try to focus on how do you as authentically as possible that's sound, hard. sound that, the note that's hard enough. Yeah, that's well, more than hard enough to to um, to create something that expresses authenticity, um, and um, and if that is accomplished, and it has to be continually reaccomplished, because authenticity dies um, moment to moment. So then, yeah. So then, how does one? Um um, well, that's why we practice to answer that question, that question you were about to ask. How does one do that? Um, it's like um, we um, 
look inside again, and then yet again, and yet, then yet again. And, 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 and as circumstances change outwardly, yet again. And I think, uh, you know, another element of this is uh, something that we've talked about is the willingness to uh, take a risk, to, sure. to risk one's uh, um, uh, posture of rightness, if you will, to... Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more there, and that's, and that's um, uh, well, to take a risk um, means... Uh, as as our teacher Robert Ennis used to say, be be willing to goof gloriously, yeah. and and that means you know look like a fool, right. you know it's okay, it's okay. I mean maybe it's a maybe it's a, a function of of my age, but um, increasingly it's easier for me to look like a fool because number one, who knows how much time I have left. And who's going to care? And um, number two, when I ha- when I was uh, imagining myself to be playing it safer, um, it didn't produce, it didn't uh, create the um, the effects in the world that I wanted to cr- uh, to create. So why not goof gloriously? So having a um a posture of risk taking, or um, uh, in the words of uh, you know my Shakuhachi teacher, you know be, basically uh, be willing to die, mm-hmm. um, because if you're not, as he would say, you you, you go to hell. Well, let's let's contextualize that because that sounds a little extreme to um, people who don't know what you were referring to. He, your Shakuhachi is a um, an instrument where the breath. The focus on the breath uh, is remark needs to be remarkably nuanced even to make the most elementary music with it. Or at least that's my observation in seeing you engage with it and mm-hmm. etc. And and so um, what your teacher is pointing to is this um, willingness to. Die is all can also be said is the willingness to look like a fool when nothing comes out when yeah. no sound comes out, and so so the death of your egoic um, wish to look like the uh, you know God's gift. Yeah, and I think that 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 is that quality of uh, release and openness is the essence of authenticity because it's like you're open you can be touched you can be uh hurt you can be you know and you're not trying you're not grasping after the shield of uh reputation or the shield of rightness you're simply offering as purely as you can to the best of your capacity in that moment uh what it is that you can yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to entirely push away the word um, being right. If if it's being right to look good, yeah, that's one thing. That's what I, that's what if I it's mean. being if it's um, doing the right thing, that's another thing. Right. I mean, often um, in in, the, in this context, doing doing the right thing uh, requires a kind of a courageousness of 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 
taking that kind of risk. Whereas sure. when we shrink back or contract and play it safe, we're um, uh, less right. Mm-hmm. Doing less the right thing and uh, uh, putting energy into uh, looking good, or you know, uh, putting energy into reputation. Well, and sometimes, sometimes the way this works is that um, you think you, you think you've got some hot, um, interesting idea, and then you trot it out there, and it turns out no one salutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and um and that's part of part of the process of discovering creating and recreating authenticity um in each successive moment so um uh, so then it's important not to try to create another story about how really um my um, my my brilliant idea falling flat on its face was was really my way of of uh, showing how um, committed to authenticity I am. Unless you can joke about it, if you can joke about it, then that that's another whole uh, story. Yeah. So that is so, but that problem is a um, it's an interesting problem because people can be touched by authenticity even if they aren't necessarily um, going to drop everything and uh, go join a spiritual community. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that quality of authenticity we're talking about, that note actually sounds and resonates with uh, uh, many people even if their relative valuation is uh, uh, in the, the mix of all the things that they put their time in is is not so high people still can be touched and what, uh, what uh, I, I kind of I kind of lost you so, there. so what I'm trying to say is before we were talking about um, you know the the construct of the magnetic center and the sense that if you focus on just producing an authentic message then those who value it are those who will respond to what you put out there or nothing nothing may happen and yet you've done what the universe needed to have done yeah there's another it's like you know we have this almost automatic social uh well social metric um, of if other people like what we're doing and they signal that by um, joining us in some way, shape, or form, um, then, we're, then we've been successful. And one of the things that I learned from my teacher was that success, you may not know you succeeded until you die, um, by which I mean that um, we never know the the full effects um, of our actions because they radiate out into those those con- the consequences of our actions radiate radiate out into the universe in ways that are mostly invisible to us it's a it's one of those remarkable things when sometimes there's a reflection back from some source that we didn't know even existed um, some reflective source that we didn't know 
the existence of. Um, and then we discover that, oh, we really did create something. And, and so, so one of the ways to be authentic, it seems to me, is to trust that if we're acting with, with a good heart, then um, it doesn't matter whether someone approves or finds enchanting or um, applauds what we're up to. It may even be that we're um, doing our work when, when people are um, casting slings and arrows because they don't understand what, what we're doing, but they're automatically responding in some way. Um, and it may well be that they're responding to the authenticity from the fear of authentic- authenticity. And yet, maybe sometime future in, at some future time in their lives, that will be a cause for remorse that will bring them closer to the authenticity that we seek to share. So, so the, um, the amazing um, uh, multiplicity of the universe, the ways in which it works are so um, expansive that unless we've just gone to a cool ritual, we may not have a sense of it. I'm referring back to my Catholic uh, 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 three-year-old childhood. And I'm joking about that, of course. But I'm not, also. Because because sometimes, sometimes we get these moments when the universe seems to say, I hear you. I see you. I resonate to the music you play. I dance with your dance. And that's a um, that's wonderful if we get it. But even that's not necessary. Shouldn't be necessary, at least in my view. Um, although the universe being what it is, almost certainly we'll get something. Mm-hmm. Got it. Good. Anything else you want to talk about right now in the context of um, this previous discussion? Well, there there is um, another aspect of this that um, I'm reflecting on. The, uh, a comment our friend Robin made... Um, in talking about you know the the kind of the proper ways in which um, this project, the Seekers Cafe, might unfold, that um, there's a fourth way notion of that uh, man cannot do, and that notion often is understood to mean that in our mechanical identified uh, sort of walking sleep state of consciousness, we can't actually do, but the promise is that um, uh, after the development of a you know sufficient presence that one can actually formulate an aim at a different level and uh, take consistent actions to realize that aim without being distracted from it by the myriad of psychological factors in oneself. However, Robin was bringing a different notion um, 
uh, which was a interesting one to reflect on, which is in this realm we can't do at all because the nature of doing happens at a different uh, scale and that what we experience and what our lives are um, are reflections of activities going on at different scales of being and we're in a sense we're a reflection of that and that we we can be aware of and we can participate in but we're not really doing the things that uh, uh, in the sense like 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 you were describing it's it's not it's in a way it's not up to us well we're uh, how about we're not sole authors we're not sole authors yes and and I thought I just thought that was interesting because uh, the the practical application of that idea in this particular case is we just participate in and align, allow ourselves to align to a happening, participate in that happening and add energy to into it, but don't confuse that happening with something that we are, you know, making happen, you know, at our individual scale. Well. Uh, I, I agree. In a, in a way, you could you could say what you've been describing is like lining yourself with the Tao. Yes. And then acting in accord with it. So it's not that we're it's not that we are um, seeking t- to be simply self-aware bits of flotsam um, being blown by the wind, but um, but rather perhaps butterflies who use the wind to go um, where the most beautiful flowers are and to pollinate help pollinate those for the future yeah or or another analogy is that we're trying to be like um, the cells in our bodies that participate uh, in the functioning of larger formations that are then part of a larger formation that's then part of another larger formation Mm -hmm. that uh, uh, seems to take actions for purposes that are beyond the scale that the cell can really understand. And that that, that going with the Tao uh, is opening ourselves to a higher movement. If if we're doing it right, yeah. Yeah, surrendering ourselves to a higher movement and aligning ourselves with a higher movement. Mm -hmm. While while always scrutinizing what our actual motives are in those moments, um, because that's that's part of how we need to participate in this material realm, Um, and um, and that's. that's part of this more sophisticated um, you're describing kind of nested energetic flows if you will right and um, uh, but we but we still have to be responsible to this realm where our bodies are real our thoughts are as real as anything else um, but that doesn't mean that they are absolute because it's, we know that our bodies are not absolute. Right. They change and end, and so do our thoughts and our feelings, etc. So, um, so keeping uh, nimble is important, and um, uh, being flexible is important. 
um, because that those are some of the, the qualities that we can train in, um, and that's in large part what spiritual training is about, in my view. But that's what that's where um, where we find the way to align ourselves with these different energetic um, processes happening in ways we can only partially apprehend. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in a, a way to configure spiritual practice in, in, in this context is, as you say, we are working to remove the obstacles within ourselves that uh, occlude or uh, um, limit the degree to which we can be effective receptacles and participants in the movement of higher in, in this realm. Okay, let's leave you with the last word. No, That's you, always a good idea. No, you, you have time to... Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I have nothing more to say. I think this is great. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you like it or not, you have the last word, Stuart. Excellent. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you're not just saying that. <laughs> I always appreciate it. You've been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, Rob and I have been discussing a myriad of topics ranging from Lectio Divina to Esoteric Christianity to the sacred in modern life. We got into uh, how it is that we value the esoteric and the uh, relative or lack of relative merits of uh, constructs such as the magnetic center and uh, went on to some very interesting material that... um, uh, I will still have to formulate when I write a description of this for the podcast. Oh, that'll be interesting. I'll, I'll look forward to reading that. But next week on The Mystical Positivist, um, we will air a conversation pre-recorded today, earlier today, August 3rd, 2019, with Zeke Badger, a long-term fourth-way practitioner, a writer, blogger, and founding member of the Seekers Cafe and a career educator whose work focuses upon developing and implementing nature-based educational experiences that inspire and challenge individuals toward personal health and a healthy relationship with the natural world through the use of adventure education, long-distance walking adventures, and rite-of-passage endeavors. Zeke owns and operates a small family-run business offering herbal products, He was an adjunct faculty member for the University System of New Hampshire, teaching courses in environmental ethics, natural history of northern New New England, excuse me, northern New England, and outdoor skills. Zeke has 30 years of class teaching experience, developing and implementing outdoor programs and environmental education experiences for adolescents at the secondary school level. He's currently working on two books, and I'm looking forward to those. Going Wild, Commentaries Upon Thoreau's Walden, Walking, and Youth's Adventure, and the other title, Long Walking as a Rite of Passage. Tune in for that show on Saturday, August 10th from 4 to 6 p.m. here on The Mystical Positivist. And um, upcoming on the spiritual calendar uh, is nothing. I guess uh, we, we are... Um, We're still in a hiatus at the uh, at Many Rivers for the, our Thursday uh, series of events, but that they will be returning in the fall. However, the um, uh, 
study group, the uh, uh, the uh, Tayu regular monthly meeting at Mini Rivers Books and Tea will be taking place this Wednesday. August 7th. August 7th at Mini Rivers Books and Tea. At 7.30 p.m. 7.30 p.m., 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol. It is a drop-in where you can sit in on conversations like this one. And also engage in some meditative practices that we right. do. All right. So you get an introduction to some of the uh, core meditation practices. There's discussion, sometimes uh, uh Long-form conversation, sometimes question and answer. It's uh, uh, it varies, and you are all welcome. Thank you for joining us once again on the Mystical Positivist podcast. Of all our shows, can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com, as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com, and join us again next Saturday. We leave you with music from a CD called Music of George Gurdjieff, performed by the Gurdjieff Folk Instruments Ensemble, Levon Eskinian Director. This piece is called Chant from a Holy Book. Enjoy.